0: I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, Cure. On today's episode, we are joined by Amy Bryn-Miller. For the past two decades, Amy has worked on behalf of children with special needs and their families. Since 2015, she has been the executive director of the Child Neurology Foundation, where she continues to guide the organization to ensure all children affected by neurological disorders reach their full potential. Today, she discusses infantile spasms, a devastating form of epilepsy that my family is all too familiar with, but is relatively unknown by most. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, infantile spasms. Let's talk. Yeah. It, 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 the word, it sounds very innocuous. It is not nearly as um, scary of a word as the condition actually is. What
1: What is infantile spasms? Well, you're exactly right. I mean spasms makes you think that someone's just kind of flailing around. We're actually infantile spasms is a catastrophic form of pediatric epilepsy. It's very, very rare. And it starts with very little Signs. Subtle. Um, subtle signs. Yeah. Just head bobs. Um, sometimes people think it's maybe an upset tummy and some GERD or maybe it's just the usual baby reflex that's happening, but actually some um, pretty significant changes are going on in the, in the brain um, and major seizure activity. So how is infantile spasms diagnosed? Right, So even though it's a rare disease, it's what's interesting about it is it actually has a pretty clear diagnostic uh, criteria. So um, really, what needs to happen is the child needs to have um, an EEG. and when they read an EEG, which is, you know, that's just a test that measures what's going on inside the brain, the brain activity. And when the physician reads that test, he or she is looking for a very distinctive pattern, which is called hypsarrhythmia. It's a chaotic pattern of brain activity that shows that infantile spasms is happening. And unfortunately, just because a child's having infantile spasms and has an EEG, it doesn't always show up right away. And so we always talk to families about the importance of that you can request a a longer EEG to make sure that you're you're capturing that brain activity for as long as you can to see if hypsarrhythmia is present.
0: And my understanding is that um, the hypsarrhythmia is also far more prevalent sometimes in sleep, which really makes that sort of overnight, you know, 24 hour plus EEG really, really yeah. imperative to kind of catching that,
1: that brainwave pattern. Yeah. I mean, and what you're talking about, Kelly, just shows what happens when a parent becomes more and more educated about a disease. So when you first learned about infantile spasms, you probably weren't thinking about when Adelaide was having the seizures and what would be the maximum you know, opportunity to capture them. And so, um, I mean, you're exactly right. Let me first just say that you're exactly right with what you're saying, but it's another reason why it's so important that families start to understand what they're seeing when they know something is wrong with their child, that that they act, and that they're in a relationship with the clinician that they can say, um, you know, so we, we did an hour EEG, we still didn't capture it. What would you think about doing, uh, you know, an overnight EEG and feeling empowered to have that question and, and that conversation with their clinician?
0: Our daughter was diagnosed at nine months with infantile spasms. Um, she'd had her first seizure at seven months. And now looking back on it, even looking back on videos that we took in between that seven to nine month range, I'm pretty sure that she was having spasm clusters. Mm for weeks, if not a month Mm -hmm. prior to us actually getting that diagnosis, which, you know, is heartbreaking to think about that you're missing something, but it really, you know, I I consider myself a very attentive parent. We Mm -hmm. were already meeting with a neurologist. We knew that something was not quite right and we were looking for things and we still didn't catch it Mm -hmm. immediately, which just goes to show how subtle these signs are. Um, like you mentioned, so it's what, um, what can parents look for? What does infantile spasms look like specifically?
1: Sure. So again, I, I wish that it, there could be just one form, but um, so the biggest thing I would I would always suggest to the family is if you feel like something's wrong, pay attention to that and then connect the dots. If you start seeing head bobs, um, if you start seeing, sometimes they're um, referred to as like jackknife kind of posturing. Mm-hmm. Um, that can all be signs of something bigger is happening. It's not just a, a typical reflex or, like I said, GERD. You know, when I came to the foundation, I was trying to get up to speed pretty quickly on infantile spasms. We had had a presence in that space for a while, and trying to understand really, the family's journey um, to getting to the diagnosis, because, um, like I said, even though it's a rare disorder, there, unlike other rare disorders, there's a clear way to diagnose. And so we partnered with another organization, the Tuberculosis Alliance, and we interviewed about 15 families to understand when they first knew something was wrong, how long did it take them to act? Who did they go to? And then eventually how long was the timeline to get the IS diagnosis? And I share this just in response to you kind of sharing about your family story. So of these 15 families. Over 90% of them knew something was wrong within a week of first seeing a head bob or a jackknife kind of reflex. They within another week accessed healthcare. So they were doing everything they should. Mm -hmm. And who did they access? They went to the emergency room, they went to the pediatrician. So basically two weeks went by from the first sign that something was happening with that child. It took on an average six months to get the diagnosis of IS. And that was after seeing an average of four physicians. So this is unfortunately the norm for mm-hmm. the families in our community. And that's why, you know, the foundation and CURE and, and the 26 other national organizations we have working together to increase awareness about this devastating disease is so vital. This can't, this is no good, right? right. You know, it's it's un- unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. We can no- do something about this. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take all hands on deck to do it.
0: When should parents be most on alert? When does infantile spasms
1: usually present? That's a great, great question. So, really, from birth to six months is the greatest um, risk. And I actually, my son just turned um, six months, and you know, you kind of hit that, and you think, oh, we're going to be sitting up. And I honestly just took like a big sigh of relief because we were out of that risk uh, risky period. That does not mean though that an older child cannot develop IS. I was going to say Adelaide was diagnosed at nine months exactly. and then
0: it came back several times most recently when she was two and a half, which is,
1: that's not an infant. That's exactly right. It again speaks to your, your comment earlier about the name of this disease doesn't really um, play nicely with creating awareness and understanding. There's some Um, oxymorons into it. So it's again, you know, I think parents need to understand that it's birth to six months. I mean, a goal of ISIN's is that every mother and father in America should have this on their radar, just like the back to sleep campaign, where Mm -hmm. our whole country knows now we put babies to sleep on their back. Um, But also trust that gut. So just because your child is seven months or a year old and you start seeing these head bobs, be activated, know what to do, and and have the conversation with your provider.
0: Absolutely. So you talk about it being very rare. I think the, the number is um, there are 1,200 children One diagnosed, 1200. Um, diagnosed every year.
1: Um, in our
0: country, in the United States. Which sounds relatively... Rare, but I have to say that you know, we know three or four families who live within several miles of us who all got the diagnosis within a year of Adelaide. Mm -hmm. So, it granted we live in the big city of Chicago and so Mm -hmm. it's a little more compact, but um, but these people are out there, the diagnoses are out there, and you're not talking about you know, you know, one in a million. This Mm -hmm. is um, it is happening in a pediatrician, and certainly in an epileptologist, neurologist office. They are going to see it certainly more frequently, mm-hmm. maybe one or two cases over the course of a pediatrician's um,
1: practice. Um, why is it so devastating? Well, it's devastating because of that for a couple of reasons. I mean, for the disease state itself, it's it's devastating because that chaotic brain pattern just wreaks havoc on a on a developing brain. And so any damage that's happening to that brain is um, incredibly scary. Um, those neurons are, are forming and, and we want that brain to be as healthy as possible to give that child you know, his or her optimal potential. So if there's um, you know, an assault on that brain, we want to stop that trauma mm-hmm. from happening. Um, and that's what people have to understand about seizures is it's an assault on the brain and you have to stop it at all costs. Yeah. The other reason I think that IS is devastating, I think it speaks a little bit to what you were saying about there's more cases out there than, than we know about, is the fact it goes underdiagnosed. And the fact that these children are seizing um, you know, for weeks, months at a time, and by the time they do get a diagnosis, it might not be IS at that point. They might get diagnosed with another form of epilepsy just because of age, or at that point, the presentation of the disease. And that's that to me as a healthcare provider is absolutely devastating, that the child had a need and for whatever reason, we missed it. Because infantile spasms is treatable in some cases. Some, absolutely.
0: Some children, some babies who are diagnosed and get the frontline treatments um, within a, a relatively quick period of time of the seizure presentation can achieve seizure freedom and go on to leave normal, if not relatively normal lives. That is an absolutely possible increase. Uh, outcome, as long as it's diagnosed and treated immediately.
1: Yeah, there's an urgency to treat because that's what everyone wants is you know for a child to reach his or her optimal potential. And so to do that, you have to stop the seizures. Um, so you're you're exactly correct. If we can stop the seizures, then there's a chance that the child might have mild developmental delay. And with appropriate therapies could go on to you know, a, a typical functional level. But the longer those seizures go you know, unmanaged, mm-hmm. the more assault is happening on that, on that developing brain. Right. And so um, you know, the more we can do to, to create better awareness and help these children get diagnosed and appropriately treated, mm-hmm. um, it's a responsibility for all of us.
0: Enjoying this episode of Seizing Life? Learn more about epilepsy by visiting cureepilepsy.org. Since 1998, CURE has raised more than $60 million to help fund over 220 cutting edge epilepsy research projects in 15 countries around the world. Now back to this episode of Seizing Life. So I sort of want to bring ICIN back in Mm -hmm. because I think that you don't see this a lot in the scientific and research community organizations coming together and creating an alliance like this. And so I just, I'm I'm so proud that CURE is a part of this. And we're just so grateful for the Child Neurology Foundation to sort of house this organiz, you know, house ICEN. Um And, you know, I got to attend a meeting last year and I was just so impressed and, you know, with
1: with how passionate all of the organizations are. Yeah, so ISIN actually was, um, I think why it's so successful, it was born out of the community's request and the community's need. And I think when you respond to a need, then you're set up for a really successful venture. And so ISIN or the Infantile Spasms Action Network, it's a collaborative advocacy model of 26 national and international organizations that have come together to raise awareness on infantile spasms. And you're exactly right. This is a model that's very unique. Um, And the reason that, again, I think we were able to bring together, and every year we add more partners. So it started in 2016 with 15, and now, um, in 2019, we're at 26. And so, in that, you have the patient advocacy community that touches infantile spasms. So again, if it's um, maybe a, a form of epilepsy like Lennox-Gastaut that um, IS evolves into, then you've got them at the table. Cure Epilepsy Foundation America, Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance. Their patient population has a very large incidence of IS. And then also at the table, you have all of the physician and nurse organizations that touch. IS uh, from the neurology um, standpoint, pediatrics, emergency physicians. And then we do have corporate partners at the table that have an interest in serving this patient population. And the goal is to speak with one voice because if you are trying to make an impact and raise awareness, why in the world would you want splintered communication going out? Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things that we did as ISN was established the um, infantile spasms awareness week which is every year, December 1st to the 7th. The second thing we did is we started to look at other disease models of how did they create awareness. And so we looked at things like stroke, where there was a new, an opportunity to develop a mnemonic um, that would be branded and easily recognizable, but would also include steps that the general public could take once they're activated to this message. And so that's really in 2017, how ISIN developed um, the STOP mnemonic which really, um, again, brings awareness to the urgency around infantile spasms and gives families immediate steps to take um, once they have um, seen the sign. So what does STOP stand for? So S means see the signs. So that's really where we are wanting families to feel empowered when they start seeing those head bobs, those jackknife um, movements and, and knowing there's something to your internal gut that something's wrong. T is take a video. We live in a digital age, so there no longer needs to be where you're just verbally having to you know, pontificate and put words together about what you're seeing. Shoot a video, email it or text it over to your physician or show it to him or her. O is obtain the diagnosis. And that really speaks to having the conversation with the provider that you want an EEG because the EEG leads to the hard diagnosis of infantile spasms. And then P means um, prioritize treatment. So that's when we are wanting again the families to engage in a healthy conversation with their clinicians about what are the treatment options and which ones work best for their child. Which leads me perfectly into
0: um, the discussion of treatments. So we sort of mentioned earlier that you know infantile spasms for some kids is treatable. Um, those treatments are terrifying. When you when the, the clinician comes to you, you have to you know for some of them you have to sign off on paperwork about you know vision loss or all of these other side effects. It can be incredibly strong steroids that you're you know injecting into your child's body. It's they're scary.
1: Yes. Um. But what I think is scarier is not treating it. These treatments um, are not popping an aspirin. I mean, they're intensive time, um, resources, and um, they, they should be made with um, due diligence and, and good conversation. But uh, what families absolutely need to hold, I would say at the forefront of that decision-making is by not having appropriate treatment, you are continuing your child's brain to be damaged. And the best way you can stop that damage is by taking one of these treatments. And so, that again, from the uh, definitely from ICEN, but also the Child Neurology Foundation, you know, a lot of the work that we do is in empowering, educating, and supporting families to understand how to best partner with their medical professional, how to have these difficult conversations, how to express what your goals of care are, and be able to hear. How the provider is coming back and his or her assessment of what those treatment options are. These treatments do have risks, um, but that doesn't mean that those risks outweigh the risk of not stopping the spasms.
0: Yeah. You know, we've sort of touched on the fact that not every pediatrician is familiar with infantile spasms. Let's say a parent is concerned. That gut alarm is going off. Something is wrong. They see an infantile spasms video. They take a video of their own child. They take it into their pediatrician and their pediatrician is like, eh, I don't know. It's probably just, you know, a really sensitive reflex um, or startle. Mm -hmm. Um, What next steps can that parent take?
1: Sure. And I do, I want to also say we're talking about one in 1200 children. So I think it's important to also give the pediatricians and emergency physicians a bit of a, a bit of a break in terms of sometimes their big role is to reassure the family. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that the issue here is when you've got a parent that is saying there is something wrong here, that provider needs to be responsible. To that need and so if the family is feeling that that provider that they're talking to is not being responsible with their feedback then I would encourage that family to go to another provider so if you' if you've accessed your primary care provider then I would go to an emergency room or depending on your insurance can do you need a referral or can you go ahead and, and see a neurologist I think it's also important for us as, as uh, advocates to make sure that when we're giving these sort of um, anticipatory guidance to families that we aren't saying you have to go to see you know the nation's expert in IS that lives five states away, because that's just not realistic for a lot of families um, just based on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that again is the goal of ISIN, is that any provider um, should be aware of IS and be able to respond to the family's need doesn't necessarily mean that a pediatrician is going to feel comfortable making the diagnosis of a rare pediatric epilepsy condition. That's asking a lot of a provider, but he or she should be able to know who to refer that provi- that patient and family to that is comfortable making mm-hmm. that diagnosis. And um, so again, I think it goes back to a little bit of um, understanding of the various uh, players involved in this, but at the core, making sure that that patient and family are activated and educated to maneuver the situation based on their goals of care.
0: No, I just think that's incredible advice. And you know, um, if all else fails, you go to that emergency room.
1: That's exactly right, and you keep asking. And, mm-hmm. and um, the other kind of resource that we should talk about is, um, we, we promote it through ICEN, but it's um, another program that the Child Neurology Foundation administers. It's called our Family Support and Empowerment Program. And this is a program that actually right now is working with families in all 50 states and 58 countries. And what we do is when a patient or family contacts the foundation, we pair them up with a parent that has walked a little bit further along in their path. They've received some training, some mentorship, they understand um, how to help support the family and the patient where they're at, whether that's with information or resource navigation or just the emotional experience Mm -hmm. that this family is going through. So this is another resource, it's 24 seven available that families can, if they're hitting a brick wall, they're saying, I'm doing everything you're telling me to do and no one is still listening, then again, don't feel like you're alone. And that's, we talked about this earlier, that a lot of families feel so isolated. This is a great inroads and it gets you into a larger network of people that can also help you problem solve. Unfortunately, healthcare from the outside looks like it should be black and white. Healthcare isn't for those of us who've walked and lived in it. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) it is not black and white. But when families have these sort of emergencies, they immediately think, oh, I should be able to do X, Y, and Z, and it should, it should move on. Hopefully it does. But in the case it doesn't, know that you're not alone. Know that you can go and get some additional resources that are free um, to you. And again, feel feel activated that, that there's people out there that want to walk with you and they want to help you.
0: Without Ison and without the Child Neurology Foundation and these organizations who are creating infantile spasms awareness week and creating the STOP mnemonic and creating um, an incredible video, which Ison launched at the end of last year, um, which can be viewed at www.seizinglife.org forward slash as well as on the um, infantile spasms action network website, um, which clearly shows uh, actual Babies who are having infantile
1: spasms, so these parents know specifically what they're looking for. So pediatricians know they have a reference point. Totally. And that's really it's Monica Jones from the um, Brain Recovery Project that produced that video. And, you know, ICEN, we give um, just a, a little bit of grant money to partners within ICEN to basically let them do their strengths. And then that furthers the mission of, of ICEN and the message. So it's it's a Um, multiple levels of giving these uh, families the tools to be able to navigate the conversations that are needed to get the diagnosis immediately. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a big believer on this is our watch. We're the adults right now in this Mm -hmm. world. And what is happening is unacceptable. So if we don't start demanding change and working towards it, then shame on us. You know, I hope that in my lifetime, you know, the state of IS and and some of these other rare disorders are just completely different because we're able to activate families appropriately as well as really partner them with the clinicians that know how to take care of these diseases.
0: Amy, thank you so much Absolutely. for coming and chatting and sharing your wealth of information on this topic and the resources available to parents. And Well,
1: I wish everyone said that I had a wealth of information. Most people are like, <laughs> enough already. But um, thanks for having me over. And it's always, always so fun to spend some time with you, Kelly. Thank you for everything you're doing, not just for your family, but for all the families that are out there. Our whole community is better because of you. Thank you so much. Wouldn't do it. Have it any other way.
0: Thank you again Amy for all you are doing to bring awareness and education to the general public as well as the medical community. Infantile spasms is an emergency and needs to be treated as such, but this has to start with increased caregiver knowledge followed by clinician support. If you want to know more about the diagnostic and treatment challenges of infantile spasms, then be sure to check out a free webinar at cureepilepsy.org forward infantile spasms. Finally, you can sign up for information about upcoming podcasts or listen to past episodes at cureepilepsy.org forward slash seizing life. Thanks so much. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure. The information contained herein is provided for general information only, and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.